Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as today we're going to be speaking with Nathan Seward. Now, Nathan has an unusual story because he worked for many years as an airline pilot and then had a reinvention of who he wanted to be. So we hear about his life story in this interview. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, you might want to check out some of the earlier ones in the back catalog because we're up to more than 150 now. And we're going to get straight into this interview with Nathan. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Nathan Seward, who's a personal coach and a podcaster. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be fun because I actually haven't had another podcaster on the podcast before, so um, we can compare some notes a little bit. Yeah. Um, but also, I'm really keen to hear about some of your um, your work, and um, I know that you've been an airline pilot, and I've never had a pilot on the show before. Cool. <laughs> so um, Glad to be the first. Yeah, that's right. But before we get into that, I always like to hear a little bit about the person and sort of where they're from. And so if you could just take us back to your childhood and, and tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, where you were from. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm from Christchurch, so it's, um, yeah, it's nice to do a Christchurch podcast. I do a lot of podcasts in the state, so it's fun to kind of do one in my hometown. Yeah. Uh, but I grew up here and uh, pretty standard sort of middle class upbringing mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, great childhood, long, hot summers. Yeah. Lots of boating, you know, good, good times. And there's a lot to do in Christchurch, isn't there? There like, is. You, like I often am talking with internationals and they'll be like, what, you could be skiing and then be at the beach and then, you know, go on a mountain bike? And <laughs> Yeah, I think it's um, it's an interesting point. I, I don't think I appreciated that until I left. Mm. You know, I lived in um, Japan for a while and uh, coming back to New Zealand as a tourist really gave me fresh eyes on yeah. You know, just how much variety there is mm. of things to do. Yeah. And you ended up becoming a pilot. Was that something that had always interested you, like flying? And yeah, how did you yeah. get into that? So my mum was from Montreal. Okay. So uh, her family was all there. So from a young age, we flew back and forth to Canada mm. uh, from New Zealand. And it was at the time where there was no security you know, in the cockpit or anything like that. So right. on those long flights to LA, you know, my parents would be asleep and I'd sort of take on the, the, the flight attendant's dress or whatever and say, hey, can I go up into the cockpit and see the pilots? And I would spend hours up there just chatting with them, probably really? annoying them, a precocious <laughs> little kid. Uh, yeah, but I just, I was really captivated by the whole, the job, you know, and, and sort of being like in the, in the customs queue and then seeing the whole crew sort of parade past everybody mm-hmm. and wondering, man, where are they going now? What are they doing? And mm-hmm. what is this crazy lifestyle? Mm-hmm. And there was a real air of mystery about it mm-hmm. that, that I loved. And so it just sort of started a real obsession and it became an obsession. Oh, uh, did it? Yeah. So what age did that sort of change to being an obsession? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, uh, when I got to high school, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, it was pretty clear that's what I wanted to do. So I convinced my parents to let me do flying lessons at 12 years old. Mm -hmm. So I would go out to the airport here and do flying lessons, um, you know, once a month. So they saw that this is, he's serious about this. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty cool actually in hindsight to see that they went, yeah, Hey, this is what he's into. And they really encouraged me and, you know, it wasn't a cheap, um, affair. So, uh, yeah, I feel pretty blessed to have that support Mm -hmm. and just kept going. Went solo at 16, you know, got my private license when I was 17 before I had my full driver's license. I had my pilot's license. And then uh, as soon as I finished high school, I was just straight into flying school and became a flying instructor 
Wow. When I was and 18. what are your memories of some of those first trips, you know, when you were 12, like going up and like, was it all that you dreamed it would be or? <laughs> yeah, it was a, a incredible freedom. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it was, you know, you're going up in the small planes. Everybody that lives in Christchurch is used to having small planes, mm-hmm. you know, flying over the city all the time on a nice day. So yeah, um, just that, that first uh, first flight smelling you know the old airplane it smells like oil and you know it's not romantic it's loud and it's it's a bit smelly and i just loved it you know yeah. it was a tremendous sense of freedom yeah to do that i took a flight um relatively recently over to hokitika from christchurch i mean not me flying <laughs> yeah just on a plane but it was an amazing just the, it was just a particularly beautiful day the snow on the mountains you know and as we went up and then there's lakes right there and then you're flying over and then you're coming down and there's the ocean it was like just such a diversity i guess of yeah. of landscape that that must be something unique about christchurch yeah it is i mean it's it's beautiful you know i i worked for uh mount cook airline flying the atr for about four years okay and uh so we were flying to queenstown Dunedin, Nelson, Wellington, you know, all the time. And it just never gets old, mm. you know, flying over the South Island. It's just such a incredible amount of scenery packed into such a small mm. place. Mm. Um, you know, and it changes every half an hour when you're flying. You get a new perspective and a new, you know, part of scenery. It's great. Yeah. yeah. So what's the, how do you get into that as a career? Like, I, I, I could be wrong, but would some people go down sort of Air Force route and, studying in that way yeah it's it's common in new zealand you know we got rid of the um the strike force uh just before i started flying full-time so it became less of an option Mm. um so we have a relatively small you know air force but it's still an option for a lot of people right uh in the u.s of course it's huge right you know that would be i imagine probably half the pilot supply comes through the military right uh but you know new zealand's a pretty small industry so there's pretty set ways that people Mm. come through either as a flying instructor was my path i did that for four years i see you know when i first started a lot of people go to queenstown do scenic flights a lot of people go to taupo and do parachute jumping a lot of Uh people head off to Africa and Indonesia and do some real backcountry flying. Right. So you sort of do anything you can to get mm. that, that first 500 to 1,000 hours. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that what you're aiming for? Like you got to log a certain number of hours to then qualify to yeah. get the next job? Yeah, it's very much, I don't know if it's the same in law, but there's uh, there's always another step in flying. So right. you know, the joke is you'll go to a job and they'll say, oh, you need 500 hours. You know to get this job and then you'll come back and they'll say oh yeah now you need a thousand hours right and then you go to the next job oh you need multi-engine time you know then you've got to go and find that oh you haven't got enough night hours you know so there's this sort of constant struggle all the way through right until that that day where you get the call up for an airline job yeah right and did you know um i guess that it was sort of international flights that you wanted to to aim for or get into well flying the atr mm-hmm. you know was my dream Right, and we where the uh, the flight school was based in Christchurch is this big window on the other side of the runway that looks right over at the terminal. Oh, okay. And so you're just constantly looking at you know all these ATRs streaming in and out, and for me that just seemed like the dream. I could live in Christchurch, could fly all around New Zealand, uh-huh. and so that was my big goal: international flying or jet flying. It just it didn't have the same appeal. Uh-huh. I did end up doing that, but my big career goal was to fly ATRs. You know. Mm. And what was it, I guess, what was it like once you'd achieved that goal or, or was actually, were actually doing it? I do quite a bit of travel and I've often thought that the pilots kind of have to go from plane to plane to plane, you know, like yeah. it's quite a rigorous schedule, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's very, um, 
it depends it depends on what you want to do there's a job for everybody so uh the long haul lifestyle being away for three days to a week at a time doesn't suit everybody the the domestic stuff is a little bit more for people that want to be home if you have kids and stuff like that so you can kind of choose yeah the job that best suits you yeah it makes sense yeah and and for the international like the the three to seven days or whatever like if you if you do a flight is there a mandatory time to recover and then get the next one or it depends it depends on each country Mm. uh you know when i was i flew up in japan for four years we had sort of a 12 hour minimum rest wherever we went um and usually a lot more than that uh yeah i mean there's enough time usually you know we, we would go off into asia for you know, three, four, five days sometimes mm. and do big trips and get a chance to see, you know, the, the cities that we were going to, Yeah, which was nice. Yeah. Well, thank you for indulging my asking all these questions, but I've just never spoken to someone who's <laughs> actually sort of been the pilot up there. Yeah, no, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I say, it's, it's kind of a mysterious career, I think, even more so now that, mm. you know, the cockpit security and stuff is so tight, you don't really get to experience that job. Yeah. Well, I think like you, I traveled a bit when I was a kid back and forth, New Zealand, America and things. And you're right, it was a lot more accessible. Like I do remember even the flight attendants coming back and saying, hey, would you like to come up and say hello to the to the captain? Yeah, you exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but you're right. It doesn't really happen that much now. Yeah, well, there's a big shortage in the world now. It's a huge mm. pilot shortage. It's only going to get worse because of low-cost airlines and just, you know, we're a lot more of a traveling uh, culture now around the world. Yeah. And so the the airline industry has exploded and the demand for pilots is, is much more than the supply. Mm. And I think a big part of why there's a shortage is that kids don't get that opportunity to experience that job right now like they used to yeah so it's a big issue for airlines it's only gonna get worse yeah i mean they need to do a bit of pr there and yeah i think that's a lot of bring what in some children on. and yeah. you know give them a tour exactly of, of the, yeah um and just this is kind of a bizarre question but how much does a modern day pilot actually pilot versus what the computer is doing it's kind of a misnomer. There's a sort of the, the, the cliche line that, um, you know, the airplane flies itself, mm. which is true, but not true. Uh, you know, the airplane uh, may be on automatic pilot, but the inputs are still coming from the pilot. Right. So, you know, modern uh, philosophy would be that, you know, there's no such thing as automatic takeoff. So the pilot will always do the takeoff. And then usually you want to get the autopilot in within a few minutes after takeoff. Just mm. some guys like to fly it, you know, to a little bit higher altitude just to sort of keep their hand in. Mm-hmm. There's no requirement that you have to have it in. But uh, modern philosophy sort of encourages you to get the autopilot in as quickly as possible. So then both pilots can have all their attention on monitoring everything. You don't have one guy that's fully involved in just handling the aeroplane. Mm. And then now most aeroplanes, certainly most jet aeroplanes, are capable of landing themselves so they can land in, you know, poor weather conditions. Right. And so depending on, you know, the pilot, they'll alternate between an auto land and a, a manual landing, depending on how they feel. Mm. So the worst conditions, might they might use a computer? Yeah. Or, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, we, you know, when I was in Asia, we flew a lot into... Um, china you know right. where the pollution would be very bad and so oh, okay. not necessarily bad weather but terrible visibility uh, and we would almost always go for an auto land right in those scenarios yeah just because of smog and the, the exactly. general the pollution can't see in front of you yeah yeah i had the other a uh, couple of weeks ago or months ago now um we were coming into land in palmerston north and then they kind of got to like we could basically see the ground and they went whoosh back up and yeah. we ended up in Auckland right and I guess it was just too 
too dense a fog or something yeah there's sort of two requirements there's a, a cloud requirement a height requirement and then a forward visibility right so oftentimes as a passenger you know you'll be able to see the ground because mm. you, you're below the clouds mm. but up the front there's almost no Nothing visibility there. forward i see yeah yeah interesting so um yeah just talk us through like japan i, I lived in japan as well yeah um, that's neat for, that we both yeah, there. yeah i was in osaka for a year and four years in tokyo um what what took you there it was being based in japan for the job yeah well, i don't know if a lot of your listeners feel this way uh, but you know once i i got into you know my dream job and i was flying and, and doing that for a few years i kind of had that feeling of like was this it right you know is this all there is what next do i do this for 30 years on repeat yeah and that didn't seem very satisfying to right. me right uh and alongside of it i'd always had, had this entrepreneurial itch as well and so um you know, I had a car washing business when I was a kid. And, you know, then my brother and I started a, a fish and chip shop that we planned to franchise in Christchurch. And so sort of always had this little entrepreneurial bit on the side. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of came to the realization that flying was probably not going to take me through to 65 years old. Mm. Probably had a, a time limit on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt like that was maybe 40. So I thought, what well, what are the jobs that can help me transition into that so that I don't have to just give up flying immediately to start a business? Right. Uh, and this contract in Japan appeared that the schedule was two weeks on, two weeks off, hmm. which was, you know, a dream yeah, for anybody. Yeah, pretty good, yeah. <laughs> and it was very odd in that you, could, you couldn't live in Japan per se. You could live anywhere in the world and the airline would fly you to work once a month. I see. <laughs> so I looked at this, and it was triple the money uncommon. of the job that I was doing. Yeah. And so I thought, man, this is incredible. There's a few upsides here. <laughs> a few upsides, yeah, yeah, and some downsides. But, uh, you know, I focused on the upsides, and I thought, wow, I can use that two weeks off to travel the world, which is sort of something I, because I'd got into flying at such a young age, I never did the OE mm -hmm. or anything like that. So I thought, well, this is my chance to travel the world and have some time to start a business. Mm -hmm. So that took me to Japan. You know, I didn't I know see. anything about Japan. I'd never been. When I went the to the interview, it was my first, my first time there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just sort of dove into it. Wow. So they would just fly you in for the start of your shift and then you'd fly around for two weeks and then yeah. be off wherever you wanted to go? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so a lot of uh, a lot of Kiwis out there. You know, mm -hmm. There's probably about 15 Kiwis that were living in New Zealand and commuting back and forth every wow. two weeks. Huh. Uh, I chose to kind of live in a new city every month. Right. So I just sort of picked a different place and went and spent two weeks there for the first few years, which was fun. Uh, I mean, the downside would be you have to, the way the contract is, they still wanted you to do full-time amount of flying. I see. So you had to sort of cram you know, a month's worth of flying into two weeks. So right. you sort of fly nonstop for six days, have a day off, fly nonstop for six days. So it's pretty tiring, Yeah, which is kind of what got me in the end. That's pretty, yeah, that would be pretty brutal, especially sort of to London or somewhere like yeah. long haul flights. Is that what you were doing? Maybe? No, we were they all, you know, what we'd call mid-haul okay. flying. Yeah. So the longest flight would have been uh, Tokyo out to Singapore, which might have been six and a half, seven hours. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then <laughs> combine that with coming in on your last shift and then going, okay, now I'm off to wherever for two weeks. Yeah. Time off, you know. Yeah. It was like, there's a lot of time in aeroplanes. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you ever tried to calculate how many hours it's been, oh, or man. it would be I, yeah, thousands. It's pretty horrendous. <laughs> I think I, you know, I worked out in the 2015, I took 45 flights for leisure. Right. You know, on top of my job. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I don't know, there's a lot of time in the airplane, probably yeah. an unhealthy amount. Yeah. So describe that, um, you know, you've got two weeks off. How would you choose where you went? Was it like, oh, well, I've never been to Thailand. I'll go there. Or, oh, yeah. I'm going to go to China now. Was it, 
how did it work? Yeah, it was very bucket list oriented. Uh-huh. Uh, so I did go to Thailand. I had two weeks in Phuket, which was really fun. Uh, did a cycling trip around Iceland. Um, spent a lot of time in New York. That's where my love affair with New York kind of began. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, lots of other places. I just thought, man, this is such a good opportunity to start ticking off bucket list items. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's pretty cool. And what was your feeling as you're traveling around the world, you know, having grown up in New Zealand and then you're in these diverse places and things, what was your impression of New Zealand sort of looking back? Oh, that's a good question. That's, that's, um, it's hard to kind of remember what it was like, but one thing I do remember is how hard it was to leave New Zealand to start. You know, I I was based in Christchurch until I was 27 Mm -hmm. and then the earthquake happened. I see. uh, And, you know, I was sort of, at that age where a central city and nightlife was important. Mm-hmm. And so when the city was kind of closed off that there were kind of, um, do not enter signs everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I thought, uh, I made the tough decision to move to Auckland. I think I stayed for about four months after the earthquake and, you know, that was a really tough choice and probably an unpopular choice, you know, not to sort of stay and mm. and rebuild per se. Moved to Auckland, which was a tougher choice, did that for a few years and then, saw the job in japan so i think the hardest part was leaving new zealand in the first place because right. it's i don't know it's that that feeling of turning your back on your home country or leaving everything that's comfortable mm-hmm. um but yeah it's 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 not as scary as you think i think that's probably what i felt mm. is getting over there and i've spent a lot of time in the u.s over the last few years and just realize how advanced and how competitive we are as a country and its people mm. and i think a lot of the a lot of people here don't think that you know we, we feel like little old new zealand in the middle of nowhere right and at we the, love it at the end of the world yeah. sort of mindset. And I, don't, I don't think we think we're uh bad i think most new zealanders are pretty proud of what we achieve here mm. but maybe that we wouldn't be competitive on a world stage and then when i uh you know spent a lot of time in new york i realized wow you know we're as competitive or as advanced or something in some cases much more advanced Mm. than what's even happening in the big cities in america Mm. and there's a really tight new zealand network uh, especially in new york right there's a lot of kiwis in very uh impressive positions Mm. uh, which i don't think those stories get told enough yeah what what is it do you think that is it about the kiwi mindset that means people are rising to you know tops of organizations and around the world yeah it's a good question i think from my experience, we are, um, I don't know how you would say it, but we're sort of, we're not pretentious and we're not uh, fake. Mm. Like a lot of times, I don't know if it's part of the American culture, but there's this real uh, image that you have to put on or an image that you have to uphold. So it's, mm. you get this feeling as a Kiwi that it doesn't feel that authentic. Whereas for us, I think what you see is what you get mm. for the most part. I mean, there's plenty of exceptions. And I think people find that quite reassuring and quite comforting to be able to meet Kiwis and say, oh man, they're very friendly, they're very authentic, you know what mm. you're getting. Mm. Um, and that kind of open, authentic humbleness mm. takes us a long way. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with you because I, I left New Zealand to move to London and started working as a lawyer over there and there was a very good reputation where law firms were like, oh, there's a Kiwi, there's a New Zealander they were sought after, you know, they were mm. um, conscientious. They showed up when they said they would. They were, yeah, they, they weren't trying to be anything they weren't. So. Yeah. I think also it's worth noting that the people that are moving 
to those places are a particular type of right. kiwi as yeah. well. <laughs> and so it's a, the, probably the shock of it is uh, how hard people work. Mm. I'm speaking in, for America primarily, but mm. um, very, very productivity and work focused and mm. the sort of two weeks vacation a year is the standard. Mm. And so I think that can be a little bit of a shock. We're very, we can be very lifestyle focused here, yeah. which I think is great. Mm. Um, but yeah, in some of those more competitive places, it's a, a very tough work ethic. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're probably right. Cause uh, yeah, again, um, from what I've seen of America, there's not as many benefits, you know, you've had yeah. your child. Well, when are you coming back to work? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the same. Well, that, I think that's what the country's built on. Mm. Mm. It's built on productivity and a dream and building things and building businesses and making money. Yeah. So it sounds like a pretty ideal job where you're able to go anywhere in the world for two weeks and then work really hard for two weeks and then be off on another adventure. Yeah. Um, what was it that made you realize maybe you wanted to try something new or do something different? Was it a, like, yeah, was it a moment or did it just sort of gradually build? It was, it was definitely gradual. I, don't, I think this idea of like the big aha moment is a bit of a misnomer for mm. most people, in my experience. It's generally a slow degradation of something or a, um, yeah. you know, a slow realization of something else. Mm. And so, like I said, I'd moved there with this intention of kind of finding something to do on the side as mm. well as traveling. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a couple of things happened. Um, one, I had a bad breakup. I had, uh, you know, the boyfriend that I was with, we traveled to Tokyo mm -hmm. together. And right. We were doing this sort of traveling together. Mm -hmm. And after um, a year, we ended up, you know, breaking up. It didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And that was very, a very tough moment for me. Mm. Like, it, it, I think until that point in my life, everything had gone pretty well. Right. I sort of said, oh, I want to do this. And it had happened. Right. And uh, I want to get a dream job where I fly yeah, for exactly. two weeks and I have two weeks off yeah. to go. Yeah. do other things and so i was probably yeah. pretty cocky mm. you know probably unbearably so to some people uh so that breakup was a real jarring mm. of of you know i thought i knew it all yeah and it just happened in that moment that i had been following a personal development blog which was sort of another one of my passions on the side was self-help personal development mm -hmm. and at the time of the breakup when i was sort of having this rock bottom moment the guy sent an email um offering a 12-week course turn your life around kind of stuff right and i thought oh man yeah this, this is, is the me. moment yeah. this is the moment uh -huh. um so i hired him and ended up working one-on-one -on -one with him as my coach i had no idea what a coach was mm -hmm. um for two years mm. and so not only did we work through the relationship stuff which was very powerful he helped me also figure out well what is this bigger thing that i'm mm. after and I said to him, uh, you know, I have this amazing job, you know, I've got two weeks on, two weeks off, I get paid all this money, I get to travel, you know, it's just ultimate freedom. And he said, well, it's a great job, but it's not freedom. Mm. And I said, what? <laughs> what do you mean? It was very confronting, sort of, as coaches have a habit of doing, it's intentionally confronting. Yeah. And he said, well, somebody still controls your life two weeks of the month, mm. so it's not freedom. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks, Wow. You know, that, that's very true. And so from that realization was now what does freedom look like? And it was business. It was entrepreneurship for me. And I loved the experience of being coached so much and just how profoundly it shifted my perspective. Mm. I thought, man, I want to do this for other people. Mm. And he was traveling the world. He was doing it remotely. He was charging me a bucket of money. <laughs> so I thought, man, there's an opportunity here. Mm -hmm. Um Looked into it, and it was an industry that was really taking off. Mm. And so I started just slowly learning Building to coach up your and, knowledge, yeah, yeah, and figuring yeah. out how to do it. Yeah. What was it that made made him a really good coach? 
Good question. He was an Olympic swimmer okay. from Canada. Mm-hmm. And so he was a, just a high-performing human mm. and had lost himself post, you know, uh, Olympic career. Mm-hmm. And so was he'd kind of gone through that process of being at the top of his game mm-hmm. and then having to reinvent himself or ask difficult questions. And so I think we have a saying in coaching that you can't take your client any deeper than you've gone yourself. Right. And when I started talking to him, I was like, man, this guy's, he's done the work. You mm. know, it was very clear that he'd gone through all of the stuff that mm. I knew I needed to You're go speaking through. from personal experience, exactly. not a book. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, interesting. And so, um, so there did come a moment when you put in your resignation letter and said, I'm moving on to the yeah. next thing. Describe that moment. What was it? What was it like? Incredibly tough. Again, it's. It's. I don't think it's a moment. I I don't think that the idea of the moment is a misnomer. But it's. It's a collective amount of moments. There was a uh, a moment (laughs) where I was uh, at a coaching event, the first one I'd ever gone to, Mm -hmm. and the guy called on me from the stage and uh, sort of said, "Is anyone struggling with anything?" And I put my hand up, and he said, "Nathan." I said, "Yeah, I." I'm just struggling. I don't know whether I should give up my flying career. It's a job that I've always loved. It's a dream job Mm. to go into coaching full time. It feels like kind of a ridiculous idea to take this known thing that sort of feels perfect to most people and is earning a lot of money to go into this ambiguous Mm. business that, you know, and he said, okay, well, let's just flip a coin and whatever it lands on, that's the choice. Mm. And the whole crowd sort of went quiet and went, oh, geez. Okay. Uh, And then somebody flipped a coin and he said, it's head, uh, if it lands on heads, you stay in your job. If it lands on tails, you leave and you chase this coaching luck. And so the guy flipped the coin, put it down, and he said, don't tell us what it is. Nathan, what are you feeling? And I said, man, I would be, in that moment, I said, like, I, I would be devastated if you said I had to stay flying. Huh. And he goes, great, we don't have to look at the coin. And the point of that exercise was just to show that actually – intuitively you always know right you may say you don't know because it's scary to confront that answer but we probably always know the right answer Mm. and so from that moment that was the moment i knew okay the truth is i want to give this a go Mm. and from that point it was about six months before i left Mm -hmm. it was a three month notice period right the uh yeah you have to line things up and you have to line things up you know one of the cruel parts of like starting a business alongside of your job is like the last few months before you leave, you're making the most money you've ever made because you have this business that's earning money and you have this job, mm-hmm. you know, so, and then you lose half of it overnight. Mm. Um, but uh, for people that are sort of in this transition of thinking about this, I, one thing I want to say is my fear and anxiety was at the maximum just before I left. Mm. Like I wasn't confident it didn't feel like it was all going to work out. There was no set path. It didn't feel certain. Mm. Um, it was a really confronting, scary time. I had some anxiety attacks, you know, in the month before I left. It was mm. felt very scary. Yeah. And so w- when I checked in with myself, what I noticed, it might be a little bit ethereal, but it, was, it felt very true for me. My heart knew that I was doing the right thing, mm-hmm. but my mind was freaking out. Right. And I was able to feel that when I kind of really sat still. I was like, no, this is the right choice. You know, all of the decisions and, and moments that have led you to this, mm-hmm. your mind's just freaking out because it feels a bit scary. Mm-hmm. But just trust that deeper part of you that knows this is mm-hmm. the right path. Mm-hmm. Um, Which echoes back to the illustration that, with the coin, right? Like, Because that was really what the exactly. person was asking is what's in your heart. Exactly. Rather than 
it actually is depending on the coin yeah <laughs> yeah but i do love that story because that is a moment in time you know like it was that, that's like quite a cool way to challenge someone yeah and i think as a coach now you know this is sort of what i do is help people make a similar transition right and it it uh i find it really challenging how many people fall victim to the fear and never pursue what they want mm. you know that's really heartbreaking for me mm-hmm. and so I guess that's why I want to say, hey, there is a lot of fear and it is anxiety inducing and it's there's never going to be the certainty that you think you need to make the leap, mm-hmm. but you can do it anyway. Yeah. 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 For me, I can echo a little bit of what you're talking about because when I was 20 or maybe just turned 21, I'd done three years at Canterbury and studying to be a lawyer and got the opportunity to go to Japan and work at a ski resort and like be there for three months cool. and then potentially be there for a whole year on a working holiday. And I remember some people I spoke to said, Oh, you've got to finish your degree, get your job, start your career. If you do that, if you take a year out, it's going to be a blemish in your record. Foot. Yeah. It's going to affect your future prospects and all that. And then I had another friend who's actually from Chile and he said, will you regret this when you're 95? You know, it's a, it's yeah. a great question, I think. And, and I thought, you know, I think I will regret it at the end of my life that's the point is i probably would regret not pushing it not going and taking the risk and going and of course you know the end of the story is i learned so much more in that one year than i had in all my university years like all the independence and it's an amazing time in japan so yeah it kind of echoes what you're talking about yeah Uh, yeah i mean there's such a yeah i guess we're all in such a hurry to dive into our careers at that Mm -hmm. age Mm -hmm. you know but it does yeah that's a cool story actually yeah so now you're helping people who are in these transitional phases or you know want to talk about their life probably you know how are you how are you enjoying that (laughs) (laughs) it is enjoyable it's uh you know i'm completely uh unprepared to be an entrepreneur so it's been you know i've been doing it full time i left uh flying in july 2017 okay uh so it's been a few years uh so that's been like an mba for me i feel like i've been doing a live mba uh, just learning about money and the you know cash flow in the business, mm-hmm. how to find clients, how to maintain clients. Uh, work-life balance is a challenge because mm-hmm. there's no, you know, when I parked the airplane and went home, I didn't think about <laughs> flying again. Yeah. Whereas I think about my business every minute of the day. Yeah. So and still, I guess if it's international, you're getting emails at all hours all and like, yeah. hey, do you want to? Can we catch up? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but incredibly, incredibly rewarding. Mm-hmm. Very rewarding. One of the, the things when I was flying that in the end was sort of missing for me was this uh, wanting to create something bigger. Mm. Um, you know, with a business, you just feel like you're always creating this something. Yeah. It's very creative. And uh, wanting to make a difference for people or feel like I was making a direct impact on someone's life. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really cool side benefit of this job. Mm. As I go to sleep at night and go, man, I really made a difference today. That person really got a breakthrough today mm. in something. And that feels really good. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, I, I, with my role as a lawyer, I love getting the email saying thank you for helping me with whatever it is. Yeah. You know, it's definitely more satisfying than um, you know other types of roles that I've had in the past. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the for, for, uh, yeah fulfillment piece, I guess you would say. Mm. Um, the way I kind of frame the people I work with is uh, you know professionals that are successful 
and sort of have everything mm-hmm. and have ticked all the boxes, but there's some joy and some fulfillment and even some, some love and some passion missing. Yeah. So that's where I kind of work is, you know, helping people find that joy, mm. figuring out what fulfillment is. It doesn't always have to be a business and it doesn't always mean you have to leave your career, mm. but, uh, we do have to look at things from a different angle. Yeah. Finding what, what does drive you, what yeah. you are passionate about. Yeah. So without giving away too many hints or, or clues, but what are some of the things that you find helps people learn that? Um, uh, I mean, I'll give it all the way. It's, it's, it's not rocket science. It's like, uh, how do you lose weight? Right. And you mm. eat healthy and you exercise more. Um, but it's not necessarily easy <laughs> to mm. do it on your own. It's the same with this kind of thing. So my first thing is with people is to slow them down you know, because we're sort of generally wrapped up in our lives. It's busy and mm-hmm. it's a pretty rapid pace of life these days. Mm-hmm. So I'll always try and uh, help people slow down. And even just having our core, as you speak with people for an hour a week, having that hour just to reflect and slow down mm-hmm. and actually stop, try and get people into a meditation practice just so they can start to actually listen mm-hmm. to what's going on. Um, any, any of any kind of personal development work starts with awareness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, probably 90% of uh, transformation Mm -hmm. is just being aware. Mm -hmm. So slowing down and actually acknowledging, hey, I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. Um, We can get into this thing of being like, oh, well, there's people starving in Africa, so what have I got to complain about? Mm -hmm. And we kind of write off our experience because maybe we have wealth or we have a good job, you know, so we kind of write off how we feel. Mm. So I try to... um, actually give a voice to those things and go, hey, well, the truth is it is a good job, mm-hmm. but that doesn't change the fact that you're not happy mm-hmm. or you're not fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So let's just acknowledge that. You don't have to do anything about it, but at least let's get some awareness and some, some truth around that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing for me, I think, uh, particularly for guys, I work mostly with guys, uh, having a bigger mission is so important. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, especially when, say, kids come along and it kind of feels like we're in this hamster wheel routine and just... Mm-hmm clipping the ticket and mm-hmm. um, we lose sight of something bigger. I think that's when we kind of uh, lose the, the zest for life. Mm-hmm. And when we start losing the zest for life, then it, our relationships start to go downhill because we're not, that's a big part of you having the spark in a relationship is mm-hmm. us being alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do a lot of work around what's the mission, you know, what's the mission that uh, you want to dedicate the rest of your life to. Mm-hmm. Again, no, no need to maybe go and do that full time. But what is the purpose of, of you being here? Mm-hmm. That can really light light people up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third thing is really, uh, what is it that you do better than anybody else? So some people call it the zone of genius, um, your natural gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, really figuring out what that is mm-hmm. uh, is a big thing. So then we can spend more and more time doing those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, flying airplanes was not my highest calling. I was good at it. I liked it, but it was not where I was most uh, alive. Mm-hmm. So whereas being in conversation on a podcast or being in conversation coaching, mm-hmm. that's where I really come alive. Right. You feel like that's really yeah bringing you out. <laughs> yeah. 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 I find um, it's a little picture I've had for a while is, you know, a bell. And if you put the bell on the table so that it's just there, if you hit it, it's not going to ring. But if you hold it up and you hit it, it's going to resonate and ring out. You know, and it's like, yeah. how do you uh, make sure that the bell of what you're doing is being raised up? And, and when you hit it, ding, you know, it goes yeah. out. <laughs> so it has that ripple effect. Yeah, you know, yeah, like that's that. right. 
and there's too many muffled bells. You know, mm. they're just sitting there. And um, if more of us could sort of have them raised, it would be it would be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we talked about you know social entrepreneurship, some of the stuff that you yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of my clients end up going that way. Right. In some some way they go right. This is my mission. Yeah. And then it's like, well, well what's the best way to go about that? And oftentimes a business and a social entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, you know, social model. Is one yeah. of the ways that people can see out their mission. Yeah, and I actually I deal with lots of them, and it's large numbers have come from the for-profit, money-focused world, and then they've made this sort of looking in the mirror. Is this? Am I happy here? Mm. Is this really resonating? Is this where I'm getting fulfillment? And the answer is usually mm, not really. But what if I did this other thing? And, yeah, you know. And but taking all that they've learned, you know, all the skills that they had, and and even maybe staying in the place that they are, mm-hmm. but thinking about the impact that they're having in a new way. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the sad truths of the world is that it's hard to accept is there's a lot of unhappy millionaires and billionaires around. Yeah. It's very hard to kind of get your head around that, especially if you're trying to make your wealth. Uh, how could somebody with $200 million have any problems in the world? Yeah. But, you know, money as a rule tends to uh, magnify any issues that we have so if we're mm. sort of neurotic about you know money to start with when we have little money mm. it's only going to magnify the more money we have yeah. so a lot of those people that you say that come from uh, for profit they've had the experience of being successful and getting a lot of wealth and then coming to that realization that that didn't really mm-hmm. move the needle on joy or mm-hmm. fulfillment mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's good and the joy you know that that's something that's deeper than just sort of happiness, which is more momentary. Yeah. It's and a, it's also uh, tricky. Yeah. You know, it's an art. Yeah. Right. And it's not a one size fits all. I can't say, oh, Stephen, you need to go and do this and then you'll feel joy for the rest of your life. It's, yeah. it's something that you have to really slow down and connect with mm. your own truth to find. Mm-hmm. What is it that's missing? What would fill me joy? What, what were the moments in the last year that I was joyful? Mm. You know, and it's different for everybody. Yeah. But sorry, I have to just check my news feed here because I don't have time to yeah. center down and be yeah. still. Yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, is that, the that problem these days, right? Like totally. Social media. Oh, I mean, I have, I'm the first to admit I have a terrible addiction to my phone. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's going to be more and more, we'll read about more and more strategies to get around mm-hmm. that or we'll be, you know, confronting some of the uh, the impact that that's having on us mm-hmm. you know, as a society. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's tremendous uh, positive things. I think my whole business is built on social media. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's allowed me to have an impact and connect with people that I wouldn't be able to connect with otherwise. Yeah. And then there's, uh, for my personality type in particular, there's, I hate being bored. And so now I have this instant thing that stops me being bored ever. Right. Like anytime I feel a little bit bored, boom, I'm scrolling mindlessly. Mm. Uh, and it's actually out of the boredom that creativity and joy and the best ideas. ideas right yeah yeah i often find that I, i've had some of my best ideas like when i'm skiing or doing something not work related mm. you know you'd think it would be like here i am at my desk in front of my computer and this is the brilliant idea i came up with and usually it's nothing to do with the job it's usually i'm out doing something in nature or playing a sport or at the gym or whatever and yeah, there's definitely some good principles there. That yeah. There probably will be more studies. Like, I'm thinking of my kids growing up. 
they're digital natives, you know. So what's that doing to their brains, which are being wired? Like, age three or four, they can operate an iPhone as well as I can use it. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah, it is um, amazing. But what impact does that have on on them as well, right? Yeah, we don't know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So can I just ask about podcasting? Sure. How did you end up getting into that? So part of, uh, you know, I mentioned about mission. And mm-hmm. so part of my work was like, well, what's my mission? Mm-hmm. And one of my mentors asked me a question that, I ask a lot of people now is what's the mission that would bring you to tears? You know, what's the thing that would move you so much that you would, it would bring you to tears? And mm-hmm. I thought about it for a long time. And for me, it was uh, suicide in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's a sensitive topic. So if this is sensitive to no, you, no, that's maybe, fine. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I actually think the more we talk about it, the better cool. it's been. I had a guy um, about a year ago, who is all about suicide. So we talked right. about it for an hour cool. about particularly in New Zealand, the male unwillingness to share with each other mm. what we're going through, like men to men or, or with anyone really, yeah. you know, that there's this perception of the all blacks, you know, like pass me another beer and actually it's masking a lot of, yeah, so we can go there. It's fine. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and I know you'll probably be able to put a warning on, on the episode, you know, if we talk about this kind of thing. Uh, but the, that was the thing that brought me to tears because I kept reading the article every year mm. that came out and said New Zealand has the... The numbers, right? Yeah, the numbers are yeah. horrendous. And going up. And uh, the one last year was we have the highest youth suicide rate in the OECD. Mm. And it's like, man, you know, I tell this to people in America all the time and they go, what are you talking about? Mm. There's this beautiful country, wealthy, or friendly people. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean? This doesn't yeah. make any sense. And it doesn't make sense, but it brings me to tears, you know. I can feel it already, like that thinking of young people mm. that believe that they would rather end their life than live another day in New Zealand. Mm. You know, are we okay with that? Mm. Um, and for me, it, it doesn't matter how enjoyable my life is or how great I'm doing. If I come from a country where our kids are killing themselves, they just can't bear to spend another day here. Mm. You know, it's horrible. Mm. It's horrible. Uh, so I started the podcast with a mission to end male suicide in particular. Right. It was because of the, you know, the male stats are all, mm. it's all skewed 75% male, uh, very high proportion, Marion Pacific Islander, um, high proportion of farmers, you know, mm. lots of really crazy stats around that. Mm. And I thought what I'm going to do is start a podcast. I'm going to have really deep, vulnerable conversations with men mm-hmm. and, one for me to try and understand the problem so talk to lots of therapists and psychologists and just people that are experts in this mm-hmm. uh, and two uh, i think i'm quite good at having deep conversations and vulnerable conversations so mm-hmm. i want to be able to model what that looks like for men that maybe uh, that doesn't come so easily uh, and podcasting is very unique because it's very intimate mm-hmm. it's you and i talking and then yeah. one person with their earbuds in right now on the treadmill or walking to work or mm-hmm you know, in the car. Mm. And so it's very intimate. So it's a good way to kind of feel like get an experience of what two men having a deep conversation can look like. Mm-hmm. And it's not as scary as they might, you might think. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad you brought up the All Blacks because I got Norm Hewitt to come on the show. Right. And Norm and I had just had a long one hour conversation about men's issues and suicide. And mm. he'd gone through a, a very big, um, moment with his father you know he'd been abused by his father and he confronted him and had to go through that so he talked through that which is a a common story in new zealand Mm. uh and so i did about 50 episodes one hour conversations with men right uh just trying to get to the bottom of it two things that were interesting uh the first one was more than half the listeners were women Mm. 
I thought, man, this doesn't make any sense. I made this show about men for men talking about men's issues. Right. And when I asked the woman why they were listening, they said, oh, because our men don't tell us what they're up to or how they're feeling. Right. So we listen to your show because I want to understand my husband better and I want to understand my son mm. and the, what he's struggling with because they won't tell us. Mm. So that was intriguing. And the mm. second thing was people said, hey, this is too heavy. Mm. Listening to your show, I can listen to two or three episodes and it's kind of sad and depressing. Right. So I was like, okay maybe this is not the right way to go about it. And so for the next 50 episodes, I made it about how do you live an extraordinary life? The Mm. flip side of the coin of suicide is how do you actually help people live an extraordinary life? Mm -hmm. And so I just brought people on to that had what I thought was an extraordinary life and got them to talk about their journey. Cool. So it was a long answer to your question. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. (laughs) But it's helpful for me as well because as a fellow podcaster, you know, it's always interesting to hear about what people are doing. Mm. So is that a weekly show or how often does it come out? Yeah, it's... it's weekly, so I record as a Facebook Live video on a oh, Monday. Okay. And so that's kind of fun. We get interaction from people. People ask questions as we go along, which is I really see. neat. And then it becomes an, an audio podcast from that. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's well, fun. what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to great. all Thank the you. stuff. Just send me an email. and Or uh, I think we're LinkedIn friends right yes, now. Yes, we are. So <laughs> just send me the, the links and we'll put it in. Perfect. Yeah. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to cover? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. I mean, I think... Uh, my only message is, you know, I'm not here to preach. I'm working on all the stuff myself. I'm not perfect. You know, yeah. it's, it's still hard for me to, to live, you know, what I'm, what I'm saying. But uh, I think uh, be honest with yourself. Mm. I would say for people, you know, if you're not happy, it's okay to not be happy uh, and um, get some help. You know, mm. I, I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody that wants to, to you know, have a, a different view of their lives and look at that and maybe sort of get an idea of what they might be able to do to, mm. to help themselves. Um but I think that's my message really is there is a better life out there. You're not stuck. There is plenty of help out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, it's been great to have you on the show. And yeah, I just loved you. hearing a bit about your background and exploring, you know, we talked quite a lot about being a pilot, but I think that's really important to set the scene for then what you're doing now. And I love the um, flipping the coin story. So yeah, <laughs> that was cool. really, thank you. That was really good to hear. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Stephen. No problem. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nathan. I know there were several things for me that stood out, and I actually made part of this a little two-minute episode. If you go back a couple, you'll see that they're talking about heads or tails in that story that he told. If you enjoyed it, you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes in the back catalog as well. Until next time. Mm-hmm.